0: Before we pray, I want to read to you from Isaiah 46. Listen to what God says to you today. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose calling a bird of prey from the east and the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I will bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put my salvation in Zion. For Israel, the people of God, my glory. Let's pray. God, there is none like you. God, there is no one like you, and we want to hear from your word today. God, we have come here from all different walks of life, all different kinds of places. Our hearts are scattered all over the place. And God, most of us are walking in here with zero expectation. God, we're just showing up to church like we do every Sunday. And Father, we're not expecting to hear from you, but God, we need to hear from you. God, we need your word so desperately. We're lost without it. So God, would you come near to us and speak your word to us? Would you remind us who we are? Would you remind us who Jesus is? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Oh, holy God, there is none like you. Please speak to us through your word. We ask these things and we hope these things in Christ's name. Amen. And you guys can grab a seat. As always, church, it's good to be with you. Um, if you're new or visiting, my name is Tyler David. I'm one of the preaching pastors and elders here at the Stone. I'm glad that you're here. The you Bible, go and open up to Mark chapter 14. To Mark chapter 14. And we'll be there in just a little bit. But I hope you guys had a good Thanksgiving. Hope it was a good time of rest. And even though you were maybe traveling a lot, you got to relax a little bit. Hope you took some time to actually consider all that God has blessed you with this year. Um, Often Thanksgiving is not something we're good at. Um, We don't do a good job of remembering what God's done. All we typically remember is what God hasn't done. And so Thanksgiving is a good opportunity to sit down and talk with one another. About the things you're thankful for, and a thing that uh, Lauren and I have started doing with our family, which has been really good, um, difficult but good, is to st- talk about what are the things that you're having a hard time being thankful for. Like, w- what are those things that have happened in your life the last year that you find yourself having a hard time thanking God for them because it may be evil or difficult. So, I'd encourage you guys to do that if you haven't done that already. To go ahead and process through that. What how, what are you thankful for that God's done in your life, and what are the things that it's hard to be thankful for? We're well, in Mark chapter fourteen. Verse 32 through 42, and what we're going to find today, we're going to find Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we're going to see this really intimate portrait of who Jesus is. It's a pretty famous story because it gives us this intimate portrait of Jesus praying in the garden before he goes to the cross. And it shows us this profound truth that Jesus, that while he's 100% God, he's also 100% man. And that as a man, he did not sin, but he still had struggle. That as a man, he did not sin, but he had temptation. And what we find in the garden, we find Jesus struggling to embrace the cross. We find Jesus struggling to embrace the will of God for his life. We find him struggling with the the idea and the thought that he's going to go pay for our sins, sins he did not commit, and pay a debt to God that he does not owe. You see him struggle today in the text. And through this story, one of the most basic truths of Christianity comes to light. One of the most basic truths of Jesus comes to light, that he is the only way to God. That Jesus is the only way to God. That there is no other route of knowing God as your father, no other route of having your sins forgiven than having Jesus be the payment for your sins and your new relationship with God. He is the only way. That's what the text is going to show us this morning. There's not room for anything else or anyone else. And no truth could be more fundamental. No truth could be more basic or more important than this truth, but it's still difficult. This truth is very, truth is very difficult to get our minds around because we live in a day and age, we live in a society that's very pluralistic, that thinks there's many ways to know God. There has to be. But Jesus is so exclusive. Jesus is so exclusive. He says, no, 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 no. There is no other way. There's no other way. See, it's hard to deal with, it's difficult to come to terms with because Jesus makes no room for any other philosophy or religion or worldview or ideology as a way to know God. So Jesus says, no, I'm the only way. John 14, 6, you've heard this verse before probably. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you're a Christian, you've been around church for any period of time, you probably heard this before, you probably even believe this. You maybe believe or even, you maybe struggle with it, but you kind of agree with it. But I think for the most part, our lives reflect that we don't believe this. That for the most part, our lives reflect that we don't think he's the only way to God. Now, yes, we, we believe Jesus died for sin. He's really important to know God. But what we really, what, the way we live, we live as if he's this the best route to God, not the only way to God. We live as if he's only the preferred way to God, that God wants you to trust Jesus. He wants you to know him through Jesus. But at the end of the day, there's still other ways. That's how we typically live, that he's the preferred way, but not the only way. A consistent debate my wife Lauren and I have in our marriage is directions, consistently. We will get in the car and I will be driving and we will hardly ever agree on on any given route to any given location. And so I get in the car, I start driving. It's typically how it goes. I'll get in the car, I start driving, and I pick a route. My wife very quickly goes, why are we going this way? I was like, well, because I looked it up. Well, why didn't you take this route? Well, because it's not as fast. Are you sure it's not as fast? And then the questions turn into statements. This is definitely not the fastest route to go. No, this is, you're definitely wrong on this one. And so she says that, and I always take it probably a little too personally, so I kind of have my defense, and I do two things typically. First, I go to Google Maps and prove to her that my route is superior, okay? (laughs) My route's better than yours, check, one. And then secondly, if that doesn't work, if she's still not persuaded, I do the husbandly duty of reminding her of all the times she's gotten us lost, which is always a great idea to show your wife her failures on the way to any given location. So what ends up happening, the next few minutes are silent, typically, and then come back together and we're fine. But we we had this conversation over and over again, and when we look at the different routes, me and my wife want to take to get to any place. If you look at the routes and you're objective about it, there's not that much difference. There's really not. I mean, she wants to take a right here, and I want to take a left here. She wants to go 35. I want to go Mopac. We kind of have these different opinions, but at the end of the day, the mileage and the distance is not that different, and we get to the same place. We always get to the same place. And when it comes to Jesus, I think we typically see him as this. He's a particular route to God. He's the fastest way to God. He's the best way to God. He's the way with the least amount of traffic on the way to God. It's not the only way. It's not the only way. There's other ways to get there. There's other ways to know him. If you're really, really good, you can get to know him. If you serve a lot, you can get to know him, even if you don't believe Jesus is the only way. See, what becomes really easily for us to adopt the mindset is that he's just our way. That we would take this route, and we believe in this route. We can give reasons for this route, but he's not the only route. And you can see this is happening in your life when Jesus moves to the background of your life. When all of a sudden, the way you know God isn't Jesus, it's how well you behave. The way you know God is not faith in Christ. The way you know God is by having a certain type of family or attending a certain type of church, or reading your Bible consistently, or praying consistently, or not committing certain types of sins, all of a sudden, even in your life, you find yourself not talking about Jesus all that much. Think about your time with any community you've ever been in. How often do you really talk about Jesus? Talk about our feelings, how the church needs to change, how our job is going, but rarely we talk about Jesus. Why? Because he's secondary. I mean, we kind of get that. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, we get that. But the way you really know God is through discipline. And what begins to happen eventually in our lives, and the culture, they begin to figure out, oh, well, you can still know God without him. And the text is going to show us today that's not true. That the only way to God is through Jesus. The text makes it abundantly clear. Look at verse 32 through 42. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen behind me. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is, is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is Jesus' last moment with his disciples before his suffering begins. His last moment before his suffering begins. So he takes his disciples to a familiar place called Gethsemane. It's a place they've been to many times before. That's why Judas was able to betray him, because Judas knew they'd be a Gethsemane. They've gone there many times before. So Jesus brings his 11 disciples there. He leaves most of them at the beginning of the garden. He brings his three closest friends, James, Peter, and Paul, with him. Not Paul. It's not even there. James, Peter, and John. Sorry. Y'all caught me, though. I can see that. Um, I'm reading your Bibles. Good job. So he brings his three closest friends with him, and they go to pray. And Jesus says, hey, sit here, watch, and pray for me. Pray. And he goes to pray because he is overwhelmed with sorrow, overwhelmed with grief, overwhelmed with terror at the thought of what's going to happen to him. He knows the cross is coming for me. He's terrified to the point of death. In Luke's account of this story, the way he describes it, is Jesus is to the point where he begins to sweat blood from his forehead. He's under so much strain and stress that his blood vessels in his forehead are bursting through his pores and blood begins to drip. He's overwhelmed with sorrow and anguish because he knows the cross is coming. But why is he so sad? Why why is he so terrified of this? Is it just because he's scared of dying? Is it just because he doesn't want nails going through his wrist? Is that what he's scared of? When we look at the history of the church, what you find over and over and over again are stories of men and women dying for Jesus. And when they die for Jesus, they don't have fear. It's unbelievable. The stories you'll read about, they will die and they want to die for Jesus. They're eager about it. They're ready for it. They're not fearful. They're confident. You can read the Apostle Paul and you can begin to see clearly how they see their death. Look at Philippians 1, 21-24. Listen how Paul views his death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. When you read that text, nothing about it portrays Paul as struggling. He's not terrified. He's not fearful. He's not sorrowful about his death. He's looking forward to it. The only reason he wants to stay is for the sake of the church. And so, how can Paul and so many other martyrs in the church like him have so much confidence, so much boldness, so much courage as Jesus sits in the garden weeping, crying out, heart pounding, blood coming from his forehead? Why why is he so terrified when all of his followers have so much courage? I mean, could it be that his followers have more faith than him? Are followers of Jesus more faithful than him? Of course not. Of course not. Well, then what's happening? The only possible explanation is that Jesus is facing something more than death. The only possible explanation is that in his death, Jesus is going to experience something none of his followers will ever, ever experience. That in his death, something significant is happening that's greater than just death. And Jesus is horrified. He's horrified because he knows on the cross he's going to experience the wrath of God. He's terrified because he knows this is not just a cross for me. This is the wrath of God for my people's sins. That's what he knows. See, he's not filled with sorrow because He's scared of physical pain or shame or his friends abandoning him, though that will happen. He's filled with sorrow because he knows the spiritual agony and torment and hopelessness and terror of the wrath of God is coming to him. That's what he knows. That's why he is weeping in the garden because he knows that's coming, because he has only known the Father in love. God has always ex- existed, eternity past, never has a beginning. And the father and son have known one another in perfect love and joy and infinite happiness forever. Jesus has always been his father's delight and he knows on the cross he will not be his father's delight. His father will not delight in him, his father will pour his wrath out onto him. That on the cross he will become sin on our behalf and God will treat him as such. That's why he's terrified. That's why verse 34 he says, and he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. See, Jesus in the garden asking his father, is there any other way? He's asking his father, is there any other way? Is there any other way for your people to be saved from your wrath for their sin than me dying? Is there any other way? And he asked him if there is. Let's do that. Look at verse 35 and 36. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. See, essentially he's saying, God, if there's anything else I could do, any other act, any other teaching I could give that would save him, let's do that. Let's do that. Any other way, I'll do it. It doesn't matter. I'll do whatever it takes. And he asked this three different times. So what Jesus would do, he'd pray, and then he'd go check on his disciples, who are, of course, asleep, faithful friends that they are. There's another whole other sermon in itself. But they can't stay awake for an hour to pray for him and support him. And they're faithless, yet Jesus keeps praying. He keeps going back and praying for the same thing. Look at verse 39. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. See, three separate times he walks away and he begs God, is there any other way? Remove this cup from me. Three different times he keeps begging God, God, you have all wisdom and knowledge and power. Surely there's another way. Surely in all of your resources, you can find another way for people to be saved other than me dying on the cross for their sins. Surely there's another way. But then in verses 41 and 42, the father gives him his final answer. Look at 41 and 42. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. See, Jesus finds his disciples asleep for a third time, and he knows what the Father's answer is. He shows up there sleeping, and he knows what this means. He knows the answer is, Jesus, you are the only way. Jesus, you are the only way. I hear your prayers. I know what you're saying, but you have to experience this if they're going to be saved. If my wrath is going to be absorbed, they have to be saved through you. There's no other way. Jesus hears that response from the Father that he's not the preferred way. He's the only way. He's the only way. And even though this truth may be basic, it's difficult to think about. I mean, if you let yourself think about the implications of this truth, you begin to feel how weighty it is. You begin to realize that our sin isn't as grievous as it is simply because it hurts us and other people, though that's part of it. Now, you begin to see our sin is so grievous because it puts us at odds with God, that our sin is primarily against God. And so a moment of sin, a moment of sin, because God is so happy and holy and perfect and pure and good, a moment of sin puts you under his terrible, eternal wrath. It does. It's difficult for us to stomach, but it does. That's why Jesus is the only way See, the haunting truth, the haunting truth is that God will pour out his wrath. He will. Sin will be punished, and it will either pour it out on Jesus or onto us. But he will execute judgment. His wrath, his glory, his love demands it. That's why he says there's no other way. Faith in Christ is the only way to escape that judgment and be loved as a son and daughter of God forever. And so what this means is that no matter how moral a person may be, no matter how nice a person may be, no matter how well-intentioned a person may be, no matter how faithful or talented, no matter the background or the culture or the story of any given person, the only way to God is faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way. That's what Jesus hears from the Father. And when you hear that, isn't it difficult to hear that and to see God as loving? Like you hear that and you go, okay, I kind of see what you're saying, but is God loving? I mean, it feels like to us that if God was loving, he'd find some other way. He'd take into account all the different scenarios in this world, all different people in this world, all different backgrounds and cultures in this world, and he'd find some other way. See, we think if he was loving, he would, but I want you to know it's because he is loving that Jesus is the only way. It's precisely because he is loving that Jesus is the only way. See, at the heart of God has always been and will always be love. The heart of the Trinity is love, holiness, and love. God has always had love for himself and for his people. And when you read the scriptures, there's two dominant themes. In the scriptures, God shows us what he loves, shows us how he loves, And the two things over and over and over again he emphasizes is his love for his glory and his love for humanity. That God first and foremost loves himself, his glory. And secondly, he loves his people. Now, if that's the first time you've ever heard that, if if that's the first time you've ever heard that God loves his glory most, let me explain it to you really quickly. There are tons of biblical texts I could read to you to show you this is true. But I'll put it as simply as I can. God loves himself most because he is most lovable. God loves himself most because he is most lovable. God values himself most because he is most valuable. There is nothing greater than God, nothing better than God, nothing more satisfying than God. And so for him to act as if that were true, to act as if something was better than him, more valuable than him, more satisfying than him, would be a lie, would make him sinful, sinful. And it wouldn't be helpful to us. Because if he truly is the most satisfying being in the universe, then to point us in any other direction would not be helpful. It would be less satisfaction than what he could actually give us if he gave us himself. And so that doesn't negate his love for us or even lessen his love for us. It just puts us in our proper place. that we're not the center of the universe. Everything's not about us. It's about him. So God loves his glory and he loves his people. But here's what happened. Our sin put these loves at odds with one another. Our sin put these loves at odds with one another because our sin at its core is us saying, when you and I sin, what we're saying is, God, you're not most lovable. No, God, you're not most valuable. You're not most satisfying. Something you've created is better than you. What we're saying is something you've given to me is better than you. We belittle him. We devalue his glory. And so no matter if your sin is worshiping family over God or sex over God or money over God, entertainment over God, whatever it may be, what we're saying is there's more joy apart from God than with him. That's what we're saying. We're saying his glory is not great. And so God loves his glory. He values his glory. So when we offend it and belittle it, wrath is produced. Wrath is produced. Wrath comes from love. Do you hear that very clearly? Wrath is just love in action. It's love in action. God loves his glory. When we belittle it, his wrath is produced to protect what he loves. And that may sound foreign when you think about God, but we get it in our lives. If you love someone, if you love someone, you will find yourself having wrath produced if someone belittles or devalues or degrades that person. You'll find yourself, if someone tries to act as if they're not lovable, they're not valuable, you'll find yourself jumping to action to defend them, to protect them because you love them. I was at a friend's house a couple years ago watching football with him with my wife and daughter. And he is an avid football fan. He's a crazy football fan for this certain team of his. I mean, he's going to re- remain anonymous because I love him. Um, but he loves his football team, and they were collapsing in epic fashion. He was losing his mind, like banging on the couch, screaming like a crazy person. And I wasn't emotionally invested, so I didn't really care who won, so I was trying not to laugh at him because he's being ridiculous. And so he's being crazy. His team is falling apart, and I'm trying not to laugh. Well, my daughter was on the other side of the room, about 20 feet away, in her bouncer. She's like, she's like eight months old at this point. So she's laying down, and his team is blowing it, and at the very last play, they lose the game. So he loses his mind, takes his hat, and he throws it across the room, and it almost hits my daughter. And all of a sudden, in a moment, I go from trying not to laugh to very serious and intense, and I looked at my friend and said, dude, I love you, but if you hit my daughter, I will beat you down. You will lose this game and your life same night. It's happening. And I was like, did I just black out? Where did that come from? Like, I, I, I didn't know what ha- I mean, I just said, I didn't think, I just said that to him. What happened? I love my daughter. And so you try to hurt her or belittle her. I find wrath being produced to protect her. Wrath is love in action. You get this. This is why, you just did Thanksgiving. This is why you can talk bad about your family, but no one else can, right? That's my crazy relative, not yours, Right? You find yourself, they talk bad about them, you find yourself jumping to defend them. Why? Because you love them. You love them. Wrath is produced out of love. Wrath is not the opposite of love, apathy is. Wrath is love in action. So if this is true for us, it is infinitely more true for God. God loves his glory more than anything, and he should. Nothing's more lovable, nothing's more valuable than his glory. And so when we offend him and belittle his glory, wrath is produced towards us. So now you have these loves at odds. The same people God wants to love, he wants to punish. The same people God wants to love, he wants to punish. If you you have kids, you've had this feeling before. I love you, I want to kill you at the exact same time. It's possible. So how does he bridge that gap? Because it seems like he can only do one or the other. So it seems like he could only love his glory or love us. So he could love his glory and condemn us to hell forever, but he wouldn't be able to love us. Or he could love us and let us off scot-free, but he wouldn't be loving his glory as we trample all over it with our sin. So either way, God is either going to be a sinner and letting us off scot-free, or he's going to punish everyone and send everyone to hell. Or for us, we're either going to hell or going to be, have no joy forever because if we miss out on the glory of God, we miss out on eternal joy. So it seems like there's no way to solve this problem. There's no way back to God for us. But God sends Jesus. See, Jesus is the solution to this conundrum. He's a solution to this problem. Jesus allows God, enables God to love his glory most as he loves us to love his glory most as he loves his saved people. See, through Jesus, God is able to love his glory by punishing sin. God is able to uplift the value of his name by punishing every sin against him, but he pours it out onto Jesus. See, the cross tells us how grievous sin is because someone still had to die. Jesus had to die. But also he's able to love us. He's able to love his people because Jesus takes our place. So now we get to know God in love and in friendship and in fellowship, Jesus gets all the punishment. See, Jesus is the way God is able to love himself and love his people at the exact same time. See, he's not the preferred way. He's not an option, he's the only way. He's the only way. And I want you to notice how Jesus responds to this. The Father tells Jesus, no, Jesus, you don't understand. I have all knowledge, I have all wisdom, I have all power. I'm telling you, this is the only way. I want you to notice how Jesus responds to his father's answer. Look at verse 41 and 42 again. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. See, he knows there's no other way. And all that he was terrified in the garden to face, all that was making him sweat blood in the garden, he knows is going to happen. He knows the wrath of God is coming for me for all of my people's sin. But guess what? In this text, he's not fearful anymore. You notice in this text, he's not apprehensive. He's not terrified. He says, all right, guys, get up, let's go. Get up, let's go. My betrayer's coming. Let's go face this thing head on. See, the best thing about Jesus, he wasn't forced to the cross. He wanted to go. He wasn't forced to go. He wanted to go. He wasn't dragged there. He wasn't forced there. No, he heard the will of the Father and he said, let's go. He loved his Father enough. He wanted the world to see that sin is as bad as he says it is, and he was going to die for it. And he loved us enough to go die so we could be free to know this God that all beauty and all goodness and all the things we're after is found in him, and he wanted to free us to know him. So Jesus stands up without fear or hesitation and says, let's go. That's why Jesus is what we're all about. That's why he's the centerpiece of everything, because not only did he make the way, he wanted to make the way. And he faced what was most terrifying. He, his, the love he has for us and for his, his father caused him to face what we would be terrified to face head on. You think about yourself, I think about myself, how cowardly we can be. We feel ourselves, how often you and I obey God and God has to drag us there. How often we obey God and we're kicking and screaming the whole way. How often we, we, want, we have to have this hard conversation and we keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. We have to have that hard conversation and have to do this tough thing of discipline in our lives We keep putting it off and putting it off. That's why I love Jesus. He's everything we're not he sees something far more terrifying than what we will ever face, the wrath of God, he says, let's go. That's why he's king, church. That's why he's king. He's better than us, and he gave his life for us. And so when you consider that he's the only way to God, if you're in Christ, you need to remember that there is no punishment for sins left. There's no punishment for sins left. God is not in heaven remembering all your sins and thinking, well, I love you, sort of, but you need to read your Bible today for me to love you. Better attend church today if you want me to love you. It's not how it works. There's no more anger for your sin, no more wrath for your sin. And this frees us up, church, that no matter what happens in your life, you can know God has not brought it to you to punish you. So often we'll have bad circumstances, lose a job. Relationships destroyed, someone gets sick, and in the back of our minds we think, is God mad at me? Is he mad at me? Did I do something wrong? You can know if you're in Christ, that is not the case. Jesus was punished so we didn't have to be. Jesus was abandoned on the cross as the wrath of God poured out so you and I would know forever we will never be abandoned. Will never be abandoned. Will always be loved. Even if you don't feel loved by God, it's not true. He loves you. The cross promises that. Jesus says, "There's no wrath left. Even if God wanted to be angry, He couldn't. Why? Because He already spent all of His wrath on Jesus. That's the great news that we have. That's the gospel. You and I need to remind one another over and over again. We forget it far too easily. We, we make life all about." what we're doing for God instead of remembering, no, he's already done everything for us. We already have identity. That's the gospel this city needs. They don't need a gospel that says, no, 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 the way you know God is by being a certain way. The way you know God is by reading your Bible or raising good kids or having a certain family or they don't need to hear you're, you're disqualified from knowing God for having certain sin patterns or struggles. That's not the case. There's only one way to God. It's Jesus. He's the only way, and we have to remind each other over and over again that he's the only way that we would ever want to go. Because he's the only way that's sure and steady and guarantees we can know God as our Father. So all we have to do today and the rest of our lives is just confess again and again, Jesus is right, he's steady, he's sure, and he is our only hope. Church, may he never become secondary in our lives. Let's pray. Father, how often a simple and basic truth of your word and your gospel becomes so ordinary to us. Father, we begin to think that, yeah, 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 Jesus is the only way. And we so easily get lulled into thinking that you're just a preferred way that Jesus, you're optional in our lives, but Jesus, you are of such quality and character and love and mercy. We don't ever want to move past you. God, I don't ever want us as a church to move past you as a centerpiece and a leader of our lives. God, this morning, would you remind us of who we are? Would you remind everyone in here that no amount of Bible reading or a church attending can get them to God? that no sin and no issue and no weakness can make them unsavable. But that Jesus, you are the only way. All the time, you're the only way. And you love to meet our needs. Even though we come to our our wits end, we think there's no more grace for me. Jesus, you remind us, no, I have more grace than you know what to do with. Oh God, I want to believe this gospel and I want to be bold in how I share it with the city. I remind us that there is no other way for our friends to know you. That no matter how much we might love them, only Jesus can get them to God. God, move among us and give us a song to sing. Give us a song to sing this morning because you wanted to save us. You found a way. And God, you deserve glory forever because of it. We ask these things and hope these things in Christ's name. Amen. Church, let's stand together.